Turn with me to John chapter 12. In our passage today, we have quite the contrast. We have Mary and Judas set up in the same story. And it's a, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful story um, where Mary serves her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we ought to. It's also a contrast between Lazarus, who you remember Jesus has only recently in, in the book of John raised up from the dead. We also have this contrast between Lazarus and the chief priests and their... Uh, response to Jesus' ministry. And so, as, uh, as we read this passage, I want you to pay attention to those four, to Mary and to Judas, to Lazarus and the chief priests. And think about how it is that, who, who it is that you want to be like and what that would mean for your life. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, we'll be reading John 12, the first 11 verses. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Pilfer means steal. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Mary here, sister to Martha, sister to Lazarus. Mary performs a beautiful service to Jesus Christ. It says that she took this very costly perfume and used 
used it to anoint the feet of Jesus. She wiped his feet with her hair. This is a service of worship. It's also a service in preparation for Jesus' burial. It's it's from the overflow of her heart. It's sacrificial, the value of this of this perfume, this pure nard, was extremely expensive. And so, um, it's, it's obviously comes at a cost to her to serve and to worship and to, uh, and to give to Jesus in this way. And so if you think about just the sweetness of that, of that service, the, the delight that she has in Jesus Christ and the, uh, the being overcome with gratitude and love for him that leads her to this, this very intimate relational display publicly of her love for Jesus and of her gratitude towards him. Think about what comes before this, that Lazarus, her brother who was dead, has been raised up by Jesus Christ. They were already very close friends with him. The the relationship between Mary and Lazarus and Martha and Jesus is one of close friendship. And here they are now, having a meal with him, with Jesus, present with them, serving him. And what could you do to, exp- to explain how grateful you are in that, in that context? What could you do to demonstrate to Jesus your love for him, your, your delight in him being alive, in him being there, of your brother being alive and present, right? And there Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus, and Mary does the most extravagant, the most beautiful thing, the, the most sacrificial thing that she can that she can think of to, to anoint his feet to wipe them with her hair. Uh, It's perfectly suited to this time of Jesus' life just before his death. And on the flip side, you have Judas. Completely on the opposite side of the spectrum, Judas, who is intending to betray his Lord, Judas, who has no gratitude for all that Jesus has done for him, for having made him one of the twelve, for having entrusted him with the money box, for having dwelt with him for demonstrating his power. All of the ways that Mary is thankful, Judas is unthankful. 
And you can tell that he's unthankful because he intends to betray Jesus Christ. Right? He does not see this act of Mary as one of beautiful, sacrificial, exuberant worship and, and, and gratitude. He sees it as a waste, right? But does Judas actually see it as a waste? Well, yes, in a manner of speaking, but the waste that he sees it as is that he wasn't given the money. His concern is not for the poor, is it? And that what the text explains is not... He, he wasn't concerned for the poor, but rather he was concerned that the money go into the money box where then he would be able to use it for himself by stealing it. Verse 6, now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor. But what was it that he said? He said that his concern was the poor, Right? And so, privately, Judas is actually wanting to steal the money. But publicly, he uses this this plausible idea that Mary has somehow done something wrong in her service to Jesus Christ, right? To attack her... And to convince others also to join with him in his false attack. If you read this story in the other Gospels, what you find is that it says uh, that some of the other disciples, or that the other disciples murmured as well at what Mary did. Well, the other disciples are never anywhere uh, accused of um, being hypocritical in their, in their murmuring, that they somehow actually want... Uh, themselves to steal the money just like Judas. There's a difference between Judas and the rest of the disciples here, right? The rest of the disciples have no intention of betraying Jesus, but Judas does. The rest of the disciples have no intention of stealing the money from the money box, but Judas does. Judas claims to have seen that this was wasteful on the part of Mary, because it could be given to the poor, but actually he's concerned about himself. Whereas the rest of the disciples look at that idea and they think, yeah, that's plausible. You know what? Maybe that should have been sold and given to the poor, right? And so through Judas' attack, the rest of the disciples are drawn into a into a an accusation adjoining in criticism of Mary and in her, in her worship, her beautiful devotion to Jesus Christ, ultimately is uh, attacked by Judas and he brings others along with him in that attack. But that whole thing flows out of the root in his own heart 
So you see the corrupting influence, not just in Judas and in his own life, but in the lives of other people. It corrupts them. It corrupts their judgment. They end up being joined with him in this accusation of wastefulness by murmuring against Mary's using up of this this expensive perfume, right? And so, what I want you to see first is that Judas' attack against Mary is very plausible. Does that make sense? It's, It's very reasonable to say, hey, let's not be wasteful. There are other things, you know, this is somewhat like a zero-sum game. There's only so much money to go around, and we have the obligation, the duty, the joy of serving the poor, so let's make sure that the poor are being served whenever possible by, by extra money that's, that's available, that's, that isn't needed just to buy our food and shelter and these kinds of things. So what's the point? Well, the point is that it's very easy for us to uh, come up with these kinds of plausible ideas based on true, righteous obedience, right? Because is it not our duty to care for the poor? Yes, it is. And so you look at a biblical, godly duty And you can come up with excuses that sound very, very righteous for your own unrighteous pursuits, right? Now, all of you are familiar with this in your own life, but maybe I'm still speaking too generically to understand it closely, to understand it about yourself. But let's forget for a second the other disciples, and let's focus just on Judas, okay? Do you think that when it says Judas, verse 6 again, uh, or no, verse 5, he says, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Okay. Do you think that Judas wanted money to go to the poor people. Do you think there was any any little bit of him that wanted money to go to the poor people? Well, of course there was, right? Of course there was a little bit of him that wanted money to go to the poor people. We look at Judas as this, you know, as such an evil man. That everything is, when we talk about, when you talk about, uh, you know, the depravity of man, when you talk about total depravity, Judas is our example of total depravity, right? And it's like where you're always, Judas is the one man in history who managed to always be as bad as he possibly could. But is that Judas? Does Judas match that description as you read through? Is he always just randomly killing people and 
and a complete kleptomaniac just stealing everything that he can. And you, you understand what I'm saying? Is, is Judas just like somehow as awful as awful can be all the time? Is that, is that how total depravity affected Judas? No. So what's my point? Well, my point is that when, when we get to verse 6 and it says he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. We're given a picture of the divided heart of Judas, right? We see, on the one hand, the good that he wants, and on the other hand, the bad that he wants. And, and we understand that the bad is driving the good, right? The bad is driving the good. And so what does this mean? Well, I, I just want you to think about yourself, and I want you to think about the good things that you do in justification of the bad things that you do. Okay? Now, uh, one place where I've very rarely been able to make any leeway or any headway with people in, uh, in this kind of trying to argue that this happens, all right, is with video games. Now, not that many people in here play video games, so I'm on very safe ground right now, right? But I'll, I'll explain to people the, 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 the selfishness, the wastefulness of time, the, uh, the, the overall badness of spending a lot of time on video games, right? And inevitably, what comes back is a very, very reasonable, a very, uh, what did I say before? It's uh, plausible, yes, yeah, a very plausible explanation of why this is actually a good thing. It's plausible that it's, um, that, uh, well, sometimes it's not as plausible as other times. But, <clears throat> But one of the arguments that will come back is that it's, you know, studies have shown that actually your, uh, your fine motor skills and your reaction time and various things are improved by playing video games, right? And so really I'm, I'm investing for the future when I'm going to be a doctor and doing surgery and it will be a very, it'll be a very helpful thing for me to have built my spatial, uh, what's that, what's that skill? What's that? Yes, my, my spatial awareness, my ability to think in three dimensions, and or when I become a dentist, it will really have it'll really have paid off that I played all of those games that were three D. Okay. And so, and so we laugh, right? Because what we know is what's really going on is that the desire is simply to to have the pleasure of playing a video game. Are you with me? That's the real motivating factor of what's going on. And, and all of this other stuff that you can, that, that is, um, you know, plausible or not, is given as the good reason for why we're pursuing this thing, is, um, is really just the, the cover. Now, does this person want to have good fine motor skills. 
Well, yes, of course. Do we all want to have excellent fine motor skills? Well, yes, we all do, right? And we want our children to have them too. So we should all, this Christmas, buy Xbox 360 so that all of our children will have great, excellent fine motor skills, right? <laughs> all the kids are <laughs> cheering. <laughs> well, we do. We want that. It's, 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 a, it's a legitimate good thing. It's not as good as giving money to the poor. Judas had a better excuse, right? But he wanted that. He, we all want that. We, we want the poor to have money. We want to have fine motor skills. We want to have good spatial uh, awareness and, and to be able to think in three dimensions and, and to be good at geometry and all the possible good things that could come, Right? We all want those things. They are actually good things. And yet, we can't really say that's why we want to play video games, can we? And I say we want to play video games, and I say that even to those of you who don't play video games, right? <laughs> because it's such a... It's, it's such a... a it's such an escape. It's such a it's such a pleasant way to avoid responsibility. It's such a it's such a pleasant way to let the time go by without worrying or without wor- thinking about the the responsibilities that you have. Or so 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 that's really if if we were going to say if we were going to translate the Judas story forward. Now now he said this not because he actually wanted fine motor skills, but because he was embarrassed by his inability to lead his family, and therefore he uh, would escape into the realm of fantasy. Right? That's how you would translate the, the text forward into this example. But this example, like I said, is a fairly safe example. <clears throat> it's very easy to look down on people who waste time on video games, right? After all, you read about uh, you read about the extreme cases of uh, people who played games like EverQuest. If you remember reading articles about that, whose life wasted away, and you always have somebody who's so extreme and so ridiculous. And there's, there's really no uh, redeeming factor in their life. And they are the, you know, 40-year-old fat white slob living in his grandma's basement and, and eating junk food and playing video games. And it's like, oh, we can all look down on that very easily, right? But my point is to say that We've got to see ourselves in Judas. We've got to see that this plausible deniability for the reason why he wants this thing to happen, or the plausible deniability for the reason why he's critical of somebody else, is very dependent on what's truly motivating him in his heart. And so, it's difficult. 
And the reason that it's difficult is because the moment I say, know what's in your heart, you ought to be thinking, easier said than done, pastor. Easier said than done. And that's what I want you to think about with Judas. When he said that, what was motivating him? We are told that the motivating factor was the fact that he wanted to steal from the money box. But what do you think he was convinced the motivating factor was? I think he was convinced that he was actually offended by the waste, that he was actually offended that the poor weren't being served. But he was convinced wrong because his heart had deceived him. Now, the text doesn't say that Judas had deceived himself and that we, we, we don't know what he was convinced of, but I will tell you that I, I know for sure that this happens to you, that you convince yourselves of what's motivating you and that it's a good thing, right? And, and when, viewed through the, when viewed through the lens of objective reality where you know what people are doing and what their desires are, those excuses look very, very flimsy, right? It's like the kid who steals a piece of candy and says that he had to because it had opened and, and you know, he didn't want the candy to go to waste. This is, this is what Judas just did, right? Well, we can't have it going to waste, so we better eat it. We're opposed to waste, aren't we? We're all, you know, we're all good American capitalists. We want the most efficiency in the system possible, and you can't possibly have candy just being thrown away. So you notice that it's open, and before it goes bad, you better, you better eat it up. And so, and so you say to your parents, well, you know, it was open, and so I thought better to, better to eat it than let it go to waste, and your parents thank you. Well, Why? Because they're not idiots. They know what's motivating you. Right? They know that it's not about your desire to prevent waste. It's about your desire to eat candy. Even though you weren't supposed to be eating candy right then. And, and so as kids, you, you do this. You, you come up with these, these wonderful sounding excuses. And a lot, of, a lot of childhood is learning how to make the excuses more plausible. Until you end up as an adult where your excuses, you're able to hide your motivating, the, the, the real desires of your heart from people to an extent, and you're able to come up with a very, very plausible sounding excuse. But is this your goal in life? Is it your goal in life to allow your deceitful heart to deceive yourself and to deceive others and to lead others astray with you into sin. Because this is what Judas ends up doing, right? He ends up leading all of the rest of the disciples into sin and think about attacking Mary at this time. That is an offense. That is a sin. 
to criticize her act of devotion and sacrifice to God and to characterize it as waste and to characterize her pure worship as sin. That's what he does. Right? This is always what we end up doing when, our, when, we, when we lie to ourselves about what's motivating us. When we come up with a very plausible excuse for, for something different, something good motivating us, it inevitably comes at the expense, not just of ourselves, setting, our, setting ourselves up for sin. Okay, Because think about having an extra 300 denarii in the money box. Judas is setting himself up to sin, isn't he? He's setting himself up to make it, he's setting his life up by getting that 300 denarii. That would make it easier for him to sin, wouldn't it? Because now there would be a lot more money in there, which would mean that he could take more without it being missed by anybody. Well, how often is it that our excuses, our plausible statements for what's motivating us, we don't say them to anybody else? We don't, we don't openly criticize anybody else. We simply decide what it is that we're going to do, and we decide it on the basis of, well, if I, if I do this... That would be good because that would allow me to be. That would allow me to do this good thing over here. And in the in the meantime, underneath all of that, you're thinking to yourself, and also that would be an opportunity to sin. Also, that would open up the possibility of nobody seeing what I'm doing. Also, that would open up the possibility of me being able to benefit. In this way. And, and yet you convince yourself, oh no, that's not what I'm doing. It's this other good thing that I am stating to myself in my mind. And you say, well, but it would also allow me to do this bad thing. And then what do you do? The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can know it? So what do you do? Do you deceive yourself and say, well, yes, granted, it would allow me to sin in this way, but I have no intention of sinning in that way, and so I'm going to go ahead and do this this way, even though it would open up the path to sin to me, because I have no intention of actually taking that path of sin. You have no intention. Your heart is deceiving you. The very fact that you're having that conversation with yourself is proof of what your desire, the desire of your heart actually is and what's motivating you. Jesus is... Jesus is put out with Judas. He's put out with the other disciples for, the, for their criticism of Mary. Leave her alone. Why? Well, she's, 
saving and saved this for the day, for the preparation of my burial. This is a time for exceptional action. This is a time for extravagance. This is a time for waste. Right? And so I want to I want to be careful here to explain this you know the reason that this is plausible and make sure that we understand how we're to interact with these kinds of things because some of us are uh Want, want to be consistent in everything. And wanting to be consistent in everything is a great way to end up with problems in your interpretation of this text. Okay? We must, uh, we must look at Mary and judge Mary the same way that Jesus judges Mary, not the way that Judas does, right? Jesus judges Mary and says, no, this is a time that is appropriate for extravagant use of lots of money that could go lots of other places, right? And so we need to be careful not to judge too quickly when people do something, for example, that looks wasteful, right? But we also need to be careful not to make everything into a universal We also need to be careful not to make this into some sort of universal uh, command. It is not that everybody else has been failing up to this point in not bringing huge expenses of perfume and worshiping Jesus in this way, right? It's not a failure that everybody hasn't been doing this. Up until this point, it wasn't the time. They weren't the people to do that. It, and yet, now is the time with Mary, and so and she is the person. And so it's not waste. It is, however, an exceptional circumstance. It is coming to the end of Jesus' life. It is in preparation of his body for burial. And so if you think about this as worship, and you want to be consistent, and you want to judge like, like Jesus judges, then one of, the, one, of the, um, one of the ideas that you could come away from this with is that it's important that our... Uh, that our church buildings 
and all of our surroundings in worship be extravagant in their, in their glorifying God, right? In which case, look around you. How pathetic we are. How, how Judas-like we are. We ought, to be, we ought to be buying really nice chairs, not these ugly folding chairs. We ought to have a podium that, makes, that, that, that honors the Word of God. It should be bigger. I should step up into it. It should be ornate to demonstrate the intricacies of God's Word and the, the glory of His... Right? There ought to be gold somewhere... Is this what we learn from Mary? <laughs> that's yeah, yeah, that's actually what you that's what you learn by being Judas. It's absurd. This is an exceptional circumstance. In general, we shouldn't be extravagant with the money that we're spending on worship, in general, money is spent better on the poor than on glorious buildings or on beautiful decorations. Do you understand? And yet there is a time for an extravagance, isn't there? And so how are you going to know which is which? Well, you're going to start by recognizing that this is not universal either direction. You're going to start by not being judgmental, too quick to judge either direction. When people feel out of the overflow of their heart the desire to give sacrificially and, and extravagantly to God, you won't get a sour face like Judas, right? Now, let me flip this around for a second. Is it possible for somebody to be extravagant like Mary was in a sinful way? Oh, yes, absolutely. Would it be possible, could Mary have done that in order to get a better reputation? Right? To, to try to, again, here's, you know, plausible. It's plausible. There's this, there's this goodness that she's going for. Well, I need to worship God from the bottom of my heart, and so I should be sacrificial, and so that's what I've done. And in the meantime, Jesus could look at her and say, What's really in your heart? Is it really that you just want people to see how holy you are and so you're being extravagant? After all, don't we see this happen in the New Testament? Remember Ananias and Sapphira. They decide that they're going to be extravagant in their gift to God. And what happens? They die for it. But not for being extravagant, right? (laughs) 
Could Mary have done that in order to get a better reputation? Yes. But did she? No. Could Judas have been concerned about the poor? Yes. But was he? No. Our hearts are so desperately wicked, so deceitful. So don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt. When you're trying to figure out what's motivating you, don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt. In that whole scenario I was playing out before, you know, a good thing pops into your mind to do, and then you also think of a bad thing that it would allow you to do. Here's an idea. Don't do the good thing. Why? Well, because you're opening yourself up. You're walking down the road of temptation. It's deliver us from temptation. Do you see that? Don't do the good thing. Or find a different way to do it where it won't open up the ability for you to sin. And then you'll, then you'll find out whether you are at what, what's actually motivating you. We often come up with these plausible, holy excuses for pursuing something good, sinfully. Think about, think about the idea of uh, excellence. The concept of serving God with excellence is a great example of something that is a universal covering for any kind of wickedness that you want to pursue. Because it's so generic, right? Serving God with excellence. It's so generic as to allow for any sort of behavior to be justified as holy because it's in the pursuit of excellence, when in reality the motivating factor underneath it could be any number of sins. Excellence in food preparation, okay, in, in service to God, is an honorable and good thing. But as you pursue excellence in food preparation, let me suggest to you some other motivating factors that may be in play. It might simply be your own pride. Because you want to be better than others who can't cook as well as you. And so you make a point of making sure that every time you cook, it demonstrates to everybody how good you are at cooking. But is that what's going on? No, no, I'm simply seeking to glorify God in, in cooking with excellence to his name's glory. I want to use my, my gifts. I don't, want to be, uh, I don't want to be the ungrateful servant who doesn't use his gifts for God. And so I want to use my gift of cooking that God has been gracious to give me because I'm better than everybody else at cooking. What is that? That's pride, right? You see how easy it is to, to, to come up with a very holy reason for why you're neglecting your family, spending too much time in food preparation and making beautiful dishes whenever anybody else can see them. But in point of fact, 
Your whole goal is just so that others would see how good you are at cooking. That's pride. Your heart has deceived you. Or it may be simply Epicureanism that you're pursuing. Or gluttony that you're pursuing in your, in your wonderful cooking. Right? You know what Epicureanism is? Anybody? It's uh, easiest. It's easiest to describe as uh, the. It's a philosophy, first of all, but <clears throat> it's one of like perfect, perfect seeking after pleasure in in balance, right? So the Epicureans wouldn't wouldn't throw a feast and eat 17 ears of corn and four legs of mutton and, and just glut themselves on food. The Epicurean would have a big plate with four very small and very excellently done potatoes and wonderfully, perfectly cooked small serving of filet mignon. You see... The hedonist would get the largest T-bone steak they could and eat it raw, right? But the Epicurean would make sure that everything was done just so and enjoy it just so. Because pleasure is, is found in, in the perfection and the balance and, and so forth. A food snob, yes. Yeah, there you go. A foodie. And, and it's so easy to claim it's excellence, the excellence that you're pursuing. Excellence for God. When really, you're just serving your own, the lusts of your flesh. Food is a little bit less safe for me to talk about than video games, isn't it? Because we all eat... And we all delight in food. And after all, food is a true gift from God. And so it's a much more plausible excuse than you're likely to find in video games, isn't it? What about excellence in education? Now I'm treading on downright dangerous ground, right? Could pursuit of excellence in education be the same thing? Oh, yes, absolutely. It could simply be a cover, again, for pride. My kids are more advanced. My kids are smarter. My kids are learning faster than yours. <clears throat> but, of course... You would never be so gauche as to say that. You would instead describe the excellence of the education. And in, inevitably, you leave, the, you leave the contrast to be made in the minds of the listener.
Excellence in education can also be a cover simply for the pursuit of money, just like it was with Judas, right? You need to get an excellent, well, uh, an excellent education with, with an excellent reputation of that education. In fact, the reputation of the education is probably more important than the excellence of the education itself, so that your kids can get into an excellent school. And by excellent school, again, we're talking more about reputation than excellence, so that afterwards they can get an excellent job and serve the Lord with excellence while they make an excellent amount of money. Isn't that the concern of so many of us when we look to the future and we think, I've got to educate my kids? Is it, that we, is it that we are pursuing excellence in education because we remember that command to raise up our children in the Lord? In the discipline of the Lord? Is, is that what's driving us or is it that we're looking into the future and we're thinking... I don't want them to be the people who don't get the opportunities. I don't want them to be the people who end up with the worst jobs, who make less money. You see how easy it is to justify our pursuits. And, you know, if I were to start trying to dive into this further, you wouldn't believe how quickly it can get incredibly convoluted with the justifications and the accusations flying back and forth in a spiral and and pretty soon there's this tornado of dust everywhere and you're like, throw up your hands. Who knows what's motivating me? Who knows what's going on? Could Mary have done that in order to get a better reputation? Yes. But was she? No. Could Judas have been concerned about the poor? Yes. But was he? No. What are you concerned about? What are you actually seeking when you do these things? That's what you've really got to ask yourself because there is an actual answer. As much as Judas may have convinced himself that he was concerned about the poor, he wasn't. As much as you may convince yourself that you're concerned about the waste of candy, we aren't convinced. And the reason we aren't convinced is because we know the actual answer. So how are you going to how are you going to avoid sin in this? Well, one way I've already given you is that you can actually avoid doing the good thing if it's actually if it's just opening up ways of temptation for you. But you've got to ask yourself a question first before you avoid doing the good thing. Is this good thing necessary? And if it is necessary, then you've got to then you're in a worse Spot, right? 
Because there's a lot of things that we must not avoid, that, that we are commanded to do, and that we can easily fall into sin as we do them. But we must do them anyway, right? And so, the second question is, if it is actually necessary to do it, there's no way of skipping it to avoid the temptation you see coming at you, all right? Then you can ask yourself, is there a way to do this good thing a different way that will avoid that temptation, that won't open up that possibility? So to use candy again, all right, should you, should you avoid being wasteful? Yes, you should. Is there a way with that open piece of candy? Well, first you'd ask the question, must you make sure that one piece of candy isn't wasted? And the answer is no. And so stop, right? <clears throat> but even with this example, I can say, okay, but let's say, you know, you want to make sure not to be wasteful. Is there another way besides eating the candy that you can avoid waste? Yes, there is. You could take it to your parents. Right? In our own lives, there are all of these options in terms of the ways that we're going to pursue things. And, and often what happens is that the, uh, the choice that we make is colored by our own temptations, by our own evil desires, and or we actually decide to do something totally different in order to avoid this temptation and think that over here there's going to be no temptation? Wrong. It's just going to be a different one over here, right? But by you going over here, then you're going to have people like Judas and the other disciples feeling uh, threatened, feeling... Um, offended at your decision, and, and you're even going to have people like the Pharisees, like the chief priests, feeling extremely threatened simply by your existence as somebody who is seeking to obey. Okay? And this is, the, this is Lazarus and the chief priests. Lazarus has been raised from the dead by Jesus, and therefore, simply by his existence as a follower of Christ, by him being alive, the people, the, the, the priests are offended at his existence. They decide that they're going to kill him, right? Why? Well, because by his being alive, many people were coming to faith in Christ. Many people, belief, as we've seen throughout this book, is central to what John is trying to show us, bring us to. And so the contrast between Judas and Lazarus is the same, but different, is the contrast between the chief priests and Lazarus. Judas was not being used by God to draw people to himself, but rather to betray Christ. 
On the other hand, Lazarus was being used by God to cause many Jews to believe in Jesus. Mary's devotion to Christ, a central part of it is, is this, the life of Lazarus here, isn't it? Part of her joy, part of her celebration, part of her worship is connected to the raising up of Lazarus. And so Lazarus and Mary meld together in this, in this story. The worship of Mary is, is closely connected to Lazarus, her brother. And God uses it to cause many people to believe. But Judas, who claims to be concerned about other people, and remember, do you see any indication that Mary and Lazarus are concerned about other people in this this passage? Not really. It just says Lazarus was sitting there at the meal with Jesus, and Mary came in and was worshiping him, and covering his feet with this expensive perfume and wiping him with his hair. But are they concerned about the other people? Doesn't say anything about that, right? And yet, their actions were leading people to Christ simply by their existence as faithful Christians in their obedience to to simple commands. People were being led to Christ. In the meantime, Judas says he's concerned about other people. And this is the social gospel. This is the liberal insanity that says that it's concerned about the poor people, but there's no gospel. And the chief priests, just like Judas, are enemies of God, enemies of Jesus. And it's interesting, they knew who their enemy was. They knew that their enemy was Lazarus and not Judas. In spite of the fact that Lazarus was simply existing and Judas was claiming to try to, was was an apostle of Jesus and serving as his disciple and claimed to be caring for the poor. But the enemies knew who was the threat, didn't they? His very Lazarus, his very life was evidence of the work of God through Jesus Christ. It is just his his existence as an obedient follower of Jesus that makes them mad. And you will run into this as you seek to do good things. You make a decision about what you're going to do in your life And other Christians will feel threatened by you. Non-Christians will see you as downright aggressive behavior. For you to simply show up at the grocery store with four kids is... is, is, it, it, It has the risk of obliterating their entire worldview. Of forcing them on their knees before Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's it's that it's it's an you are an existential threat by your very existence as a Christian. 
And so, that's scary. Lazarus, the chief priests decide they're going to kill him. But here's the good news, okay? Think about that for a second. Lazarus has already been dead and raised to life. What, what possible good could come from the chief priests killing Lazarus? What possible good could come? He's already been raised up again from the dead. It's only likely to make their destruction more certain as the power of God is displayed, right? So do you think Lazarus is scared? Lazarus doesn't have anything to be scared of. Lazarus has been given his life. He's been given the promise of eternal life. Not just that he knows that whatever they can do to him in this world, he's already been through. Even though they determined to kill him, they are obviously going against common sense. And how many times is this the case with non-Christians who are attacking you? They are obviously opposed to common sense, obviously at odds with truth. Clearly, their fighting against God has made them completely mad. Lazarus had already died and been raised. And your life, as you begin to be seen as an enemy simply by living out these sacrifices, living out these acts of worship, living out obedience, living out faith, you are safe in him, even when you die if you believe. So, flee from the sin of Judas. Flee from the temptations in your heart. Don't be deceived by them. Give yourself to living like Mary. Give yourself to living like Lazarus. And you'll have nothing to be afraid of. Because you are hidden in Christ Jesus. Your life is guaranteed for all eternity. Let's pray.